Welcome to Connectify Conversations. My name is Shannon Adair, and I'm the Director of Client Success at Connectify. Our mission is to share the experience, expertise, and insights from gaming industry leaders that comes from years of navigating the complexities and impact of compliance. On this episode, we have special guests. My name is Zach Zarnock, and I'm the Chief Compliance Officer at Foxwoods Resort Casino. Also with us today. My name is Sean Topchi, and I'm the Director of Business Development at Connectify. Thanks for joining us today, and remember to like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also learn more anytime at connectify.com. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y.com. Zach, uh, first off, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you know, we know you have a massive amount of responsibilities in an absolutely massive property. So, you know, thank you for taking the time. No, absolutely excited to have uh, have a good conversation today. Always, always love to talk about uh, <laughs> compliance and AML compliance. One of my one of my favorite topics. Well, Zach, tell us how did you get involved in the gaming industry? So, I've got a, a unique story. I'm actually uh, an attorney by trade. I finished law school passed the uh, the bar in Pennsylvania and had no idea what I, what I wanted to do with my life. So uh, I actually uh, went to dealer school in, in West Virginia to deal blackjack and craps. It's just something to kind of do as I was trying to figure out what, what avenue I wanted to pursue in law. And I really just fell in love with the industry. I, it was just, I'd, I'd been in casinos in the past, but just working working in that industry, the excitement, the level of everything that's going on, it was, it was something that I just instantly fell in love with. So I spent some time actually working in operations for a few years. I had moved to central Pennsylvania to be closer to my wife, who was in med school, and they had just legalized table games in Pennsylvania. And I was there opening the dealer school maybe a week or two and was actually called into a meeting with the the, the general manager, the CFO, and the controller, who I'd never met before. And we small talked for a couple minutes, and they said, oh, HR tells us you're you're an attorney. Is that true? I said, yeah. But, all right. Well, you're our you're our new compliance officer, <laughs> which I had I had no idea what that meant. I, I'd never seen an internal control before. I only had a a really rudimentary understanding of, of what Title Thirty One was. So it was just kind of, oh, by the way, we open in in uh, twelve weeks, and we we need these internal controls. We need to write a better AML program, and it was just kind of off off to the races. And that's how I kind of got involved on the compliance side of things. It was it was. Uh, not not where I intended to end up, but it's someplace now that I'm here that I that I love and I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. That's funny. Usually, at least on the Vegas side, I, I think we ended up seeing a lot of accounting and gaming audit and rev audit type people get kind of transitioned or, or forced into the compliance officer role. I mean, a little handy that that you actually had the the legal background going into it to start off. So a little bit of a leg up, even though regulatory compliance and, and AML compliance is is different than probably how you applied your legal studies. Right. Absolutely. I, I think having the legal background, being able to dive into the regs and really understand it's helpful. But I think also just coming with an operations background. I mean, to your point, there are a lot of accountants out there, a lot of numbers people that do a great job, but they lack the understanding of what's, what's happening on the floor at, at 8 p.m. on a Friday. So coming up through operations and being able to understand not just what a procedure looks like on my end, back of house on compliance, but how that's actually going to work 
on the floor. I think this this makes it so much easier to kind of roll out these things that are actually beneficial for compliance, but beneficial for the for the operation as well. I can't talk enough about how how important that is. I mean, when you're when you're bringing in people, if if they don't have that gaming industry experience, and not, not saying that they have to have the gaming industry experience, but if you start talking about markers and average bet and you know the time at the table and everything like that and and they can't picture it or, or visualize it I, I think it becomes harder to make those connections especially as you start talking about the the investigative side of things yeah exactly it's funny you say that i mean we're actually hiring an analyst right now and, and, I, and i've talked to people that that i would rather take somebody with casino experience and teach them aml versus maybe taking somebody with with an AML background in banking, for example, but that doesn't understand our lingo or what we do in the casino. I've had more success transitioning casino folks to, to, to an AML analyst role as opposed to outside AML people that just don't get the hang of the casino. They, they, they can't fathom the fact that you can have anonymous transactions because they've worked in a bank where nothing's ever been anonymous. I was like, well, yeah, there's, there's a lot of anonymous transactions here. It's, it's just so much easier when you have that baseline understanding of, of what the casino is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it, it's just, it's, it's been a fun transition. I mean, I, I spent some time in Pennsylvania in that role and then I was able to uh, move into it. The, the most that I've learned in my career, I was able to move into a corporate role overseeing AML for um, ultimately through expansion, 20, I think it was 23 properties. So just being able to see the scope of small regional property properties in the Gulfs, uh, larger Midwest regional properties, really large casinos in Atlantic city, just kind of getting, getting to see the scope of everything um, and how, AML plays out across those different types of of risk profiles has really kind of helped me throughout my throughout my career. And then I was able to actually had a great opportunity to go back and and um, in, in 2020 work for for one of my mentors was the CEO at uh, at Ocean, a large property in AC. So I was able to go back into a, uh, a, a chief compliance officer role there and kind of really expand back out of solely AML back into regulatory and responsible gaming. Um, and then life's just funny sometimes. In uh, 2021, um, our CEO decided it was it was time to step down and, and pursue other things. And two days later, I got a call from a uh, recruiter that said, "Hey, you want to talk about the the chief compliance officer role at Foxwoods?" And said, "Whoa, gotta gotta listen to that. Foxwoods is one of those iconic names in the industry. So it's 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 kind of funny sometimes. You know, it's hard to map out in advance, but you end up where where you're supposed to." When you do talk about Foxwoods, I mean, as far as East Coast casinos, it's it's one of the ones that comes up every time. It, you know, growing growing up in Vegas, being used to Vegas casinos and the the style resorts we have, you know, you just assume that's the end all be all. And then, you know, fortunately, a few years ago, I, I had the chance to go out there to Foxwoods, and I mean, it's it's almost intimidating how huge the property is. I mean, I, I like to walk casino floors just to understand understand the property. And I think it took me a good hour to get, you know, through all the casinos and buildings, you know, string together, so to speak. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it really is a magical place. I mean, you, growing up in the industry, you hear that name, uh, but until you come up here and see it, I mean, I was lucky enough when I first come in, came, came up the interview, it was Christmas time. So it was decked out with, with Christmas trees and decorations. And I just, I think... I was here maybe a half hour and I just, I just fell in love with the place. I mean, it is such a, a beautiful property, but to your point, it, it is massive. It's, it's the equivalent of four large regional properties that are all connected in the middle by, by three hotel towers and, and, and tons of dining and entertainment options. But it, it's like, 
it's like running four separate cases. I mean, there's multiple cages, multiple table games, pits. I mean, it's 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 unlike anything that I've ever worked before where things pretty much are consolidated or you try your best to keep everything together here. It's it, it could be a 25 minute walk to get, to get from one casino to the next casino. It's like walking half the strip. I mean, it's it's the, the, the footprint here is just in, incredible. Gosh, I, I, I can't imagine just with the visibility you like to have as a, a compliance officer and and getting to know the floor and operations and and doing the training just what a what a task that turns into but i'm, I'm sure we'll actually get into that a little bit later yeah yeah no, yeah nine, nine months later there's uh there's still places that i that i haven't seen or i'll turn a corner and what wait I, I didn't know there were slot machines back here where'd this come from so what falls under your purview as the chief compliance officer so the, the chief components um of what i do here uh, a lot of it's aml uh that that's really the biggest thing we're doing right now We've actually, in the past couple of weeks, rolled out an entirely new AML program that we built from scratch, an entirely new KYC program we've built from scratch. So we're really, what we're doing here at Foxwoods, is we're, we're, we're kind of revolutionizing <laughs> the hyperbole there, but kind of, kind of really taking a step forward and, and totally rebranding and, and, and uh, modernizing what we're doing from an AML perspective here. Uh, but other really important pieces, I oversee our, our responsible gaming program, uh, Foxwoods and and the Mashantucket Pequot tribe has always been on the forefront of, of really promoting responsible gaming. So that's something I oversee all of our oper- all of our um, efforts on the responsible gaming front. And then also the regulatory side, to a lesser degree, though, it's, it's a different uh, a different regulatory atmosphere having um, the Tribal Gaming Commission as opposed to a, a state agency. It's it's it's. It's a lot more collaborative. It's a lot. It's a lot quicker. It's 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 a totally different model than I'm accustomed to. But I think it's 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 a really good setup here, and we actually we actually can get a lot done very quickly, which lets us be really nimble and make a lot of changes on, on the go, which kind of gives us a bit of an advantage. I think one of those those primary factors when you talk about working with tribal gaming commissions as a as opposed to state commissions is, you know, one of them is really proximity. They're just they're so much closer, generally speaking. I don't know if they're on property there in a separate building, but I I believe that other building's probably right across the street. So it's just it's it's easier to engage in conversations and and be able to collaborate on, you know, how how do we work within our regulatory framework and and how do we maybe update our regulatory framework? Yeah, exactly. It's great. I mean, I've I mean I I spent years and years in New Jersey working with the division there and, and and they're a great agency. But they've got they've got nine properties or ten, however many they have right now. They've got a lot of properties to deal with. So when you have an, a single change for yourself that you're making a suggestion, they've got to they've got to see how that impacts the entire state. There's a lot of steps they have to go through. Um, right here, it, it's a one-on-one relationship, Tribal Gaming Commission and our one property. So we it's it's so easy to kind of put a suggestion out there that oh we have an idea to we want to do things a little differently here. Here's a mitigating control. It still meets what we think the intent of this of this reg was. What do you think? And, and there's times where we can we can get things changed within a, a couple of days or a week or, or things that I'm accustomed to. All right, I'll submit this and I'll hear back in three months. I'll hear back on Friday, and I'm like, hey, that's that's great. We can we we can start this weekend. That's that's great news. I want to tap back into something you, you said a little bit earlier on what falls under your preview purview with with AML in particular. You said you're kind of revamping or, or revolutionizing the way that that the property looks at it. Um, is it just how the property looks at it or is it different from how you've looked at it in the past? And are you kind of evolving with, with this AML program update? I think honestly, I've, I've evolved with, with every program I've put together. I've put programs together for single properties across the portfolio. 
I, I think every time you you put a new program together, you learn from what worked well in the past um, and the mistakes you made in the past. I, I think through the years, my my own understanding of what's an acceptable level of risk, uh, how close you can get to that line, when you want to back away from the line. Uh, I think every time you develop that new program, you, you take a step forward. And uh, <laughs> every time I've made one, I think it's it's the best program in the industry. And I've said that every time I've said that every time I make it. So every time you make a program, you feel a lot better about it. You uh, you work you you take things that you've, for people you've worked with. You add new levels of analysis. And oh, I wish I wish I'd been able to to figure that out five years ago. We could have tracked this, this, and that. So it's just always constantly growing and finding finding more that you can do to, to really dive in. I mean, it's people laugh, but it's, I think it's important to, to, to get the bad guys out of the casino that you, you there's enough. <clears throat> I know people, you always hear in the responsible gaming um, front. And I think it's, I think it's a great statement that there's enough money to be made from people that are gambling responsibly and are doing it for entertainment. The casino doesn't want a, a problem gambler here or somebody with, with, with a gambling problem. We, we don't want their money. I think it's the same thing when it comes to AML. There's enough legitimate people out there that want to come here and spend their hard-earned money that we don't need to fill the casino with criminals and drug dealers and people bring illicit money here. So I, I kind of take it incumbent on our job is to, to get those people out of the casino, get their funds out of the financial system, and, and we can still be successful while we're doing that. There's plenty of legitimately well-funded people who who like using it as as part of their spare time. Um, I think it was interesting what you said there about uh, how, you know, your risk tolerance has kind of changed over time and your understanding of of what risk is, um, you know, and the, the typologies you've seen, how you change your analysis. I, I think when you first start off as a compliance officer, at least for me, right, um, risk tolerance was probably a little bit lower, you know, first time in the position, you're a little more stressed out, uh, everything looks more suspicious, you're you're probably uh, a little more fired up and and maybe too too aggressive with operations and and that can just break down communications and and culture of compliance really quick. Um, but yeah, being able to to adapt with each you know iteration of yourself as a compliance officer, where you can start building those operations, building those relationships with operations, but also building you know your your analysis, how sophisticated it is, how efficient it is. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to see that develop over time, and I'm, I, I am curious, um, you know, how how you're approaching things with with Fox at what's now with where you're at. Yeah, I mean that's that's a perfect point. I mean, even just learning where it's worth to to dive in, and it's not to dive in. Looking back, I mean, I, I talk with, uh, I've been really lucky. I've, I've uh, my my director of BSA, I've worked with, I think, at four or five properties now that I keep I keep bringing her with me because she's because she's outstanding. But we talk all the time about what what we used to do. And we talked the other day, we were talking about a process that we had in place. I think this was back in 2015, where we were spending, and I, at the time, I thought this was really important. I don't even remember what the exact analysis was, but we were spending six, seven, 10 hours a week trying to, to, to sort a specific field or what we were doing. And after six months or nine months, we didn't have one legitimate hit. We would get 20 false positives every day, and we never actually found anything. So it's like, well, why are we spending 10 hours a week on something that's yielding zero production versus we're spending 10 minutes on something and rushing to do another piece of the analysis. So it's just kind of balancing where are you actually getting results? What are you looking for? And, and what is important versus what's not important? Kind of, I, I think over the years, I've kind of shifted my focus that when you first start, like 
oh, oh my goodness, there was you checked the wrong box on a CTR. Well, we need to spend another hour making sure that we go over all 200 CTRs that you didn't check that box wrong. And, and now in hindsight, it's like, well, sure, that needs to be correct, but you need to be spending your time on analysis and source of funds and suspicious activity. You need to spend as little, you need to do it effectively, but how can you maximize your time that you're spending as little as possible on the administrative CTR side that that goes into the database that's never going to get looked at again versus spending a lot of time on the SARS that are going to get in front of somebody's eyes and really make a difference out there. So it's kind of just learning what's important and where you can really emphasize and focus that time. I mean, it makes total sense. And I, I think each each property you go to, too, just because an analysis maybe even was, was more important at one property or the way you did an analysis at that property worked, it doesn't mean it's going to work in the next. And and that's where that risk assessment becomes so important, right? Where you talk about a small regional casino and walks with chips, you know, maybe at that five, $10,000 threshold, it makes sense to start looking at those. I mean, you go to a Foxwoods or a Caesars Palace and a $10,000 walks with chips could be a tip that a billionaire left at a table. You know, it, right. it's just getting uh, assessing that risk looking at that volume and just learning how to analyze that so so you're not just inundating yourself with with meaningless alerts or false positives that at the end of the day aren't going to provide value to to law enforcement which is our ultimate goal right exactly yeah I mean, it's 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 funny having those conversations that there's certain SARS that i mean you have to file and the irs expects you to file but that you know this isn't going to lead anywhere. So where can I focus my time to, to, to really get the good SARS, really find the people that, I mean, if you dig hard enough, you're going to find the people that are that are fast feeding and they're doing minimal play that, that are loan sharking. That That's where you really got to focus your time because if you can get those actors out of your casino, like you said, you're, you're, you're making a difference. Yeah, well said. You've mentioned that you've been at multiple different organizational levels throughout your career. Can you tell us how you've approached building that culture of compliance? I, I think in my experience that the culture that you have is the absolute most important piece of your program. You can have the strongest written AML policy document in the industry. And if you don't have the right culture, it's it's not going to amount to anything. And, and I always go back to um, at one point, uh, we, we rolled out a, a corporate AML program over all 23 properties. So the entire portfolio, they're all running by and large the same program. So my thought was being in, being kind of new to this, well, we're going to have similar results <laughs> across the whole portfolio. And then when you would get down to it, I was seeing vastly different results, both in my my own audits and internal audits and and our IRS audits. And and I'm convinced that it comes down to compliance or not compliance, um, the culture that that I would typically spend two to three weeks a month on the road. I would go to these properties and I really wanted to see what was being done at the property level. And when I would go to a property and the general manager would, would sit down and have have a meal with me and discuss what was the, the goals of the trip or would meet with me and talk about what we were implementing. Um, when the GM would sit in on your departmental meetings and offer encouragement to the departments that this is important, this is why we're doing this, without fail, those were the properties that the CTRs were filed on time, the SARs were filed on time, your source of funds investigations were done. The culture was there, the, the, the buzzword, the tone at the top. But it it matters, and and that filtered through to compliance and things that were done. On the on the other end of that, you go to a property, and and the GM can't be bothered to meet with you, or they want to spend their time as opposed to being constructive, complaining about, about how how your compliance procedures are ruining are ruining the revenue with the property. 
and or, or when you meet with the executive team and as opposed to coming up with constructive ways to do things better, they, they're, well, I can't do this. That won't work here. That may work in, in Atlantic City, but that won't work here. Those are the properties you come back three months later and <laughs> CTRs are late. SARS aren't filed. You're not getting source of funds from the PD team because that it was it's people's people read that tone. So when they see that it's not a priority with the executive team, they don't take that priority. And those are the properties that get in trouble. So it was just a stark reminder to me that you can just see, even with the same program, you go to one property and it looks like a weak program. You go to another property, it looks like a strong program. It all comes down to to that buy-in at the top. And that's just, it, it's it's critical. You have to have that. Having having so many properties un, under your umbrella, you know, in, in that time, and having seen that, I'm I'm sure on multiple occasions, did you did you find ways to work around that or work with that property leadership that was maybe a little more um, resilient or resistant at first to to start really bringing that that culture more in line with you know the rest of the enterprise? So, so that was my goal. I mean, I, I would sit down and 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 try to have conversations, kind of let them know. Um, in me, in my mind, it's all about relationships. If they just view compliance as a name on an email or a name on a memo, it's 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 easy to kind of throw that on the pile and really not pay too much attention to it. But when you actually build that relationship with people and can help them understand what you're trying to do, I think that does um, become a lot easier. I I, I always joke. I, I had uh, one journal manager that, uh, that that called me the revenue elimination department. And at first he was he, he was he was resistant <laughs> to what we were doing, but but at, by the end we, we had a great relationship because I, I explained to him like th- this is what can happen if you don't follow the rules. This is this is why we're doing what you're doing. These are the consequences, and, and it always kinds of to personalize it. I would I, w- I would sit down and tell people, look, I'm I'm paid out of the same bonus pool that you are. <laughs> I'm paid on the same metrics that you are. So I don't want to come in and drive twenty five percent of the revenue out the door. I said, but we need to do this successfully. If, if we get a fine by the IRS, that's going to affect our property and it's going to it's going to affect the whole company. I, I would tell an executive team, help me get to yes. If, if there's a player that I'm recommending that they're engaging in repeated patterns of suspicious activity, go talk with them. There's nothing wrong with going to a customer and telling them, we've identified you're engaging in XYZ behavior. You need to stop that. Like it, obviously you can't help somebody structure but there's nothing wrong with telling them, hey, Sean, we noticed that you only cash out $10,000 in chips every time you win on Blackjack. From now on, you need to cash in all of your chips when you're done, or we're not going to be able to let you play anymore. There's nothing wrong with telling them the, the the right way to do things. And that way you can kind of save that relationship as opposed to, to having to de-risk them. Same thing on source of funds. If you have a question about somebody's source of funds, I'm not, I don't want to de-risk somebody, but, but go find me. What they do, have your PD team, talk to them, bring in some paperwork, help me get the yes so I can tell you, yep, I, I feel comfortable that, that that Sean's okay. We don't we don't need to take any action on him. He can continue to be a good customer. So I think just letting them know that a lot of people view compliance as the, the evil, <laughs> the evil department in the corner. It's it's really not. We're here to help the property. We may not generate revenue directly, but if 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 it's done correctly, we can we can save you a lot of money and a lot of heartache down the road. I, I think that's a the great perspective with with help me get to yes because I, I think so many player development departments uh, because how they're approached by compliance sometimes you know they automatically get on the defensive 
you know, that you're, you're trying to get rid of my customer, obviously that can possibly cut into whatever their, their compensation structure is. And, and in truth, I mean, if a customer is legitimate and, and we have the means to prove that they are legitimate, uh, why wouldn't we want to do that? And and I think as long as compliance has that right approach of, you know, I'm I'm not here to prove that they're guilty. I would much rather prove that they're innocent. Yeah. Then exactly. Let's do, then let's do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm here to I'm here to help to help us get to that point. So I mean, if if there is somebody that is is stonewalling you and will not provide anything. Yeah, there's a handful of people out there that are just really, really private. But more often than not, there's there's a reason they don't want to tell you what they do. Or with, I mean, when somebody walks in, and, and this this came up recently, somebody walks in with with fifty thousand dollars in twenties, and they won't tell you what they do. Well, they didn't get that at a bank, <laughs> and they didn't get that at another casino. So you, you need to ask the question: like, what, why are you walking around with a with, with a bag full of bricks of twenties? That's that's not normal financial behavior nowadays. Exactly. And, you know, one of the player development directors I've, I've worked with in the past, they they made a really good point to me is, you know, with with the, the legitimate customers, with those players you want coming in, a, a lot of the ones who are really successful, who are your higher end customers. I mean, if you're if your hosts, if your PD people are, are developing relationships with them, uh, they'll often talk to their about their job or their career or their businesses with their hosts because you know they're they're proud of what they accomplished you know some people like to brag a little bit but there's there's certainly pride that they can come in and they they have these funds that they can enjoy at the casino and you know get these perks from being a higher end customer and, and so i i think part of it is if if your player development people and your hosts can can make a point to make some mental notes about those kinds of things as they hear from customers and whether you've got a a database where you can input occupation or source of funds or things like that so you get the information up front that even gives compliance the ability to do some investigation just to verify what they've already been told so then you never even have to go back and ask those intrusive questions to the customers and and so you can avoid that debacle altogether so there's there's just there's so many ways to approach it as long as that door is open between you know pd marketing all the operational departments and compliance yeah exactly i mean i'm, I'm really lucky right now we've, we've got a, a really great pd team here at foxwoods and, and our, our vp of pd has worked at some large casinos that, that have really good AML programs. So he he gets it and he knows what's going on. So it makes it makes my job that much easier that it's not unusual that I'm asking for for source of funds information. And, and I did I actually sent an email to our entire PD team once I realized we were sending a lot more requests than they were used to that hey, this is this is why we're doing this. Is this isn't to add work to you or this isn't to, to that we think you're doing anything wrong, but this is this is why we're doing it. This is why it's important. These are what the expectations are. And it's been met with with nothing but but cooperation. So it's it's sometimes you walk into a situation where that, that culture is already in place, and, and sometimes you really have to build it. This kind of depends on the situation, and and sometimes to your point, you're, you're not going to get there. I mean, I I had one trouble property that I, I found out afterwards. Uh, they would have their quarterly uh, budget meetings with corporate, and by name, I was called out multiple times as the reason that that the the property wasn't meeting their 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 quarterly uh, EBITDA targets it was because I I was me me personally I was taking all the customers out and it's like yeah that's that's not the answer that you want to give like clearly you, you don't understand what what what's what we're trying to do here 
So sometimes as hard as you work, you just, you, you can't get over that hump, but you just, you just try your best and, and just try to put everyone in a position where to succeed. I mean, I tell people my job is to keep the property out of the news and to keep you out of jail. And I will do everything in my power to do that. But at some point you, you, you have to be willing to go with me. I can only take you so far. Sometimes you unfortunately just, just can't break through that wall with them, but um, you've always, you've always got to do what you can. Right. But, but I found that to be the exception. I, I think yeah. it's, it's, I think maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it, it was probably much more of a split. I think nowadays for the most part, people get it. They understand what the consequences are. They they know what needs to be done. And I think the, the, the variation in, in types of, of what's being done uh, is, is a lot more narrow, but, but you still run into cases where, I mean, that's a, it's a tough, it's a tough argument when you're in a market like Atlantic city. And I'm sure Vegas is like this, that you review somebody and you say, you know what, I've got to recommend that, that we de-risk this, this customer. I think there's too much there. And the answer is, well, well, how can you do that? They're still playing here, 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 and here. And that's, that, that's usually the toughest conversation. It's like, we well, you know what they're, the risk tolerance is different. I don't know what the procedures are, but all I can tell you is my recommendation is it's based on what we found. It's, it's, it's it'd be tough to justify maintaining, maintaining this relationship. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it definitely is the same in Vegas. Granted that, that culture has really started to change. Um, you know, I think Sands was the, the Sands case back in, gosh, what was it? 2013, um, was, was one of the things that really changed that. And I, I believe, uh, I don't know if I'm saying the name right. Jen Li Gong uh, was actually a player at other properties and and may have gotten de-risked from other properties. And so, I mean, if if you want an illustration of of what can happen and what can go wrong when you don't do that due diligence and de-risk, um, that's that's an example right there. I'm I'm sure it was a brutal period for for the hosts and the compliance officer um, when they did de-risk him up until probably that news finally came out which was a little bit of indication but uh, you've got to you've got to stick to your guns when there's a player where you just no matter the information that you're being provided can't come to a level of comfort for what their expenditures are at the property versus what you know about their legitimate sources of income yeah yeah i mean it it can be uncomfortable to be among the first one or two to de-risk somebody but you certainly don't want to be the last to de-risk somebody because that's that's just hard to it's hard to justify that absolutely so you've mentioned a couple of times now the importance of working between departments one of one of those things also is getting the financial commitment towards technological and human resources that you need to be able to run these programs how have you navigated that in your career i, I think what, what's where i found success with that is, is really explaining to the leadership team, it, it's easy to point to what the fines are. Like, hey, here's here's the most recent civil monetary assessment. But but people see that and and that has that has an effect to a degree. Um and, and there's still I, mean, I know there's still houses out there that look at it like uh like evaluating a, a PL on whether to, to close a buffet or not. It's like, well what's how much money how much money is this going to eliminate versus how much what's the actual likelihood of a fine and how much the fine would be and it, I, I don't think you can go down that approach, but I think what's worked with me is the hidden costs. There's a lot of times where the executive team just, they don't understand what the hidden costs are. So yeah, there may be a $2 million fine, but what you don't understand is these banks now, I mean, they're sending annual or biannual KYCs to the casinos now, and they want to see your independent audits. What would happen and how much would it cost if you had, if you had to find a, a new bank to do business with? I mean, the, the costs there are, are, are immeasurable. 
And I think what a lot of people don't realize is remediation. If, if I go to you, if I go to my senior team and say, you know what, I need $50,000 for another analyst. That's a one-time, well, it's obviously a yearly cost, but that's a one-time cost. Versus if we don't do that, now somebody comes in and we get audited down the road and there's things that we're missing. We don't have the right resources. Now you have to bring in an outside consulting firm. You may pay $200,000, $300,000 for them to, to look back, look at all of your data. They're going to give you this report. And at the end of the day, they're going to come back and say, our recommendation is you, you hire another $50,000 analyst. So, well, I, I could have told you that $300,000 ago. So it's really just kind of explaining, like, it's not just, okay, well, there hasn't been uh, a casino fine in a couple of years, so you're probably okay. Like, no, like there, there's a lot of hidden costs. If you don't do this right, uh, it can add up really quick and really affect your bottom line versus it, it's it's a lot more effective to just set up a, a really strong program from the beginning, build forward, and you just have that peace of mind that you're not going to to run into one of these buzzsaws one day where all of a sudden the wheels fall off and you can't understand why you're you're, you're under budget by half a million dollars on your compliance costs because you had to do a, a two-year look back for, for a chip walk. I mean, you never want to be in that situation. When we talk about the 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 cost of non-compliance i think everybody automatically goes towards those those publicized you know enforcement actions and those publicized fines and and you know those enforcement actions will, will state remediation with them but there's there's a lot of times when there's remediation that's required that's not publicized and i i, I don't think a lot of people realize that is that just because you aren't in the news doesn't mean you know the irs or fincen didn't recommend that you do that two-year look back that um you know the external audit that you got wasn't sufficient so you need to bring on a new external auditor or maybe what internal auditor was your internal audit was doing wasn't sufficient so now for the next three or four years or two years you have to bring in an external firm to do those audits and train internal audit until you know fincen feels like um, you know, they are appropriately skilled to be able to, get, to conduct the audit themselves. I mean, there's so many other pieces of remediation that can happen that a lot of times end up far outweighing the the civil money penalties. Um, you know, the the costs just build up and build up and build up and and you can be millions of dollars in the hole, um, you know, in, instead of just having maybe had 50,000, 100,000 of extra salary a year. Right. And I, I think, I mean, and, I, and I've seen them, I've seen a lot of properties that they'll get their, their notice that the IRS is coming in and all of a sudden they've, they've got to go out and they, they, they go out and bring in an, an external auditor, an external consultant to come in and, and do some work to kind of prep them for that versus, which, which can also be expensive versus if you, if you have the program the entire way, you've built a strong program. You, you don't have to be you don't have to be scared of an IRS exam. I, I think some I mean, we talked earlier about how your program develops. One thing I wanted to mention, I mean, over the years, I, I've built some really good relationships with a lot of the the IRS um, team that does these exams. Some of my best ideas come from bouncing things off of them. And they come in and, well, why don't you look at this? Why don't you look at this this way? And like, that's that's a great idea. Some of the different analysis tools I've come up with have been a direct result of, of talking to the IRS agents bouncing ideas off them on, on hey, it's been two years since you've been here hey, this came up like what's your interpretation of this and it's, it's just it's invaluable the kind of advice they can give you so just just being prepared from the beginning it can just save you so many hidden costs that, that at the end really do add up 
so many people are terrified when the BSA examination letter comes, especially if it's if it's their first one, right? And as as long as you're trying, especially, and if you've you know you've got a pretty good program in place, the IRS isn't looking to to nail anyone to the wall. And I think they are very friendly and collaborative and, and just want to help you get going in the right direction. And, and so I, I think approaching it with that with that mindset where you're not so defensive and and you're you're open to these conversations, these constructive criticisms, and asking them, well, okay, this is this is a deficiency. You know, what what's maybe a suggestion? you have or we've thought about doing this do you do you think that would work and i i don't think i've met um a bsa examiner who's who's not at least open to a discussion like that yeah absolutely i mean they, like you said they're, they're not out to jam you up they're there to help you and improve your program and especially i always when, when i when i had my, my in the corporate role i would always personally draft the response for every single property compliance officer because i knew the tone and this goes back to culture that I wanted to, it's, it shouldn't be defensive. When they're telling you that you missed something, it, it, you don't want to, well, I didn't miss that. You're wrong. No, you did miss it. Or they would have pointed it out and you need to correct that. And they're telling you how to correct it. I mean, one, it, one of the best stories I have um, years ago, our company um, took over management of the, the old Taj Mahal for the small period of time before they actually closed and, and then rebranded with a different company. But one of the things I got to do was I got to go back and look at all of the exams and the responses that led to that that ten million dollar fine years ago, and it was just eye opening because the the audit was the the audit had some concerns, but I've I've been at other properties that had similar concerns that didn't lead to a ten million dollar assessment, and then you read the property's response, and I I was floored because it was it was argumentative. It was, this doesn't apply to us. Nobody else in town is doing this. We're not going to do this. You're wrong. It's like, that. that's not how you, that's not how you answer this. The answer is yes, you're correct. We will work our best to fix it. Here's what we're going to do. Here's our timeline. It, it was just, it, it, it changed my whole perspective on how you respond to these type of things, because that, that culture that, that shows immediately that, that this property doesn't care about compliance. Let me look, look at, look what they sent back versus if you, I think you could have responded to that totally differently and came out with a different, a different outcome. And, and you don't have to have a $10 million fine. So I've, I've taken that with me the rest of my career is you, you have to, you have to show, you have to walk the walk. If you're, if you're going to say you have a culture of compliance, when you respond to an audit, you need to respond with the appropriate tone and the appropriate tenor that, that yeah, we recognize that we, we may have missed here, here and here, but we're trying our best and here's how we're going to fix that going forward. And, and that's really, like you said, that's what they're looking for. They're, they're not looking to, to, to jam you up or make you look bad. They're looking to get everybody up to that, that appropriate level of, of compliance. And, and I think there's, you know, there, there can be pushback on, on some findings. If, if truly you have the documentation and everything to show, like if it's, they say you missed a SAR and you say, well, no, we have this investigation with the information we had at the time, you know, this is why we decided not to file the suspicious activity report based on what we knew at that, at that date. Um, you know, so th there, there can be some of that yet, yeah, but even that, the, the, the tone, the, that should probably be collaborative before you even get to the point of the final report and, right. and the responses yeah. to that report. Um, you know, once the final report is there the, and, and throughout the whole thing, the, the tone should never be defensive because they, they want to help and, but 
if you get defensive, if you get nasty, if you get hostile, they can be just as hostile. And they've got the backing of the United States government and FinCEN and the Treasury. And that's that's frankly just not a, a battle you're going to win. No, yeah, you're, you're going to come on the losing side of it every time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. If, if there's individual issues, you can kind of work through as you go. But if if it's a two, the two strike rule is against against the law and your response is, nope, you're wrong. That's not going to fly. <laughs> so switching gears over the past few years, there have been many new emerging technologies and services like sports betting, expanding to multiple jurisdictions, which you've been a part of some of different cashless options at the cage or table or slots. Are there any new product and service lines that you've had to tackle recently? And if so, what challenges did you face in doing that? I'm most excited for cashless. I think cashless is going to open up a lot of avenues to get more information because you, you can't do you can't do cashless anonymous, obviously. So I'm I'm looking forward to the day as we move more and more towards cashless and, and having less refused names at the tables and anonymous buy-ins at the slots. So I, I'm I'm excited to get to that point. I don't know if that's in one year or five years or what that's going to take in the industry. I know that's something I'm really looking forward to. But the biggest hurdle has been sports betting. I mean, as that has popped up, I think so prevalent now, it's expanding in so many different states. And there's just so much that, that's still unknown about it. Um, even in terms of, I mean, there's so many operator, third-party operators, something as simple as who has the filing obligations? There's still debate about those kind of issues. There, there was there was a time where in Atlantic City, there were uh, there was an operator that was, was running a, a branded book at two different properties in town. And even within that, we had disagreement over my property was doing our own filings. Another property was letting that operator do filings out of a consolidated office in Las Vegas. We couldn't even come to an agreement on who had the filing obligations. So there's just so much that's unknown. It's so new to a lot of people. And I think the biggest challenge is there's been so much advancement over the years. I know the IRS has pushed some of it. Our casino systems are really, really good at getting us the data we need. Slot buy-ins, ticket kiosk reports, almost anything we need, we can pull out of some of our casino systems. But the sports betting technology really wasn't designed that way. And what I'm finding is, and I can't speak blanket, I haven't seen all of them, but several of the ones I've looked at, it's it's just tough to integrate. It's, it's the Wild West right now that it doesn't a lot of them, they don't have any customer data. Every, every transaction, even if the, you know who the customer is in person, the system, there's no way to track it via a patron number. Uh, the system doesn't tell you if something is cash versus rewagering a winning ticket, for example. So you're left you're left with a situation where you're, you're as we've taken so many advances over the years on the casino side, it's almost like on the sports wagering side, we're still back in... 1995 and everything is entirely manual and you're relying on a ticket writer to give you all the information you need for an MTL or a CTR because your system report just doesn't have that that functionality. So it's, 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 it's a struggle. It's a battle to kind of get everyone on the same page to let you know, to let them know what we need and this is why we need it. And is it even possible to, to get that with the technology at hand? There's so many things you said right there that I that I kind of want to get to and, and touch on because there was there was a lot of good content there. I'll I'll start I'll start with the cashless. You know how you talked about uh, your your excitement for it. I I think I'm cautiously optimistic in, in that 
I 100% agree with you, right? We have more information at our fingertips. We have so much more uh, available, less, you know, unknown player ratings. You can't, you can't be anonymous and do cashless. And so you have that ability to kind of do that, that onboarding KYC, so to speak. Um, I, I think as we introduce the online gaming aspect of things though, it, it can open up the channels of, of synthetic fraud, synthetic identities and, and account takeovers and all those things. So I, I'm I'm skeptical sometimes, and and I've heard this at several conferences over the past couple of years about how cashless is is this cheer all almost right, and I, I just go back and think, well, gosh, we've had online banking for a long time, and I don't think I've seen AML fines stop for banks. I don't think I've seen AML risk stop for banks. So while I'm very very excited for the technology, I I, I just hope we all do have that cautious approach of there's never eliminating AML risk. And with every new product and service, there are new risks and new typologies that are going to emerge. And, and we need to be conscious of, of getting ahead of the, the curve with those. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's always going to be unexpected consequences. It, it, I think at the casino side, and obviously it'll depend on what your regulation, what your regulations are and, and, and what your, what your actual product is. I think, at least if there's an in-person component to signing up for it or funding it, or at least taking the cash out of it on the on the casino side, it, it adds a little bit of a safeguard. But to your point, yeah, if, if you're funding it entirely electronically, then you're right. That's no different than funding an iGaming account where that money could be coming from a lot of different fraudulent sources. So yeah, it does open up a lot of a lot of concerns. But I, I think it's exciting just for the point of it, it's after years of doing this, I think my biggest frustration is there's just so much anonymity that if you can at least re re reduce some of that by by having some type of system that you you, you know who these people are, I, I think that's I think in the long run, if we if we set up our policies and our procedures and our rules and and we stay diligent, I, I think we're going to come out in, in a in a better spot than we are now. And and I think I could speak for every compliance officer when I say we'd all be a lot happier not having to do unknown bill stuffing and kiosk stuffing analysis. Yep. Absolutely. It, it, it's, it, it, it drives me crazy when we, when we submit a, a, a SAR that it's unknown, unknown, unknown. I'm like, I, I know this isn't helpful. <laughs> there's, there's nothing associated with, it. I wish I could give you more, but I can't. Yeah. And it's this weird position where you, where you still have the filing obligation, but you're unfortunately sending it knowing this is going to, probably have zero use for for law enforcement which is the whole reason we file these SARS in the first place so it's it it's a tough position to be in and yeah if we can if we can eliminate that like I said I'm cautiously but I am optimistic that that cashless can help with a lot of that yep another piece that that you touched on there was um you know starting to work with these uh sports betting companies and sports betting platform providers you know it's become very common to partner with popular sports betting companies like a like a DraftKings or a FanDuel or you know Rush Street what is what is managing that relationship like I know you talked about the struggles of you know who's who's filing who's got these obligations who's doing the investigations um you know how is Foxwoods handling that what is what does that communication structure look like for for you to feel comfortable with where you're at I think it, it's always developing. So we, we've got we've got a really good relationship with um, with our partner DraftKings. It's it's always tough because, and, and some and I forget who somebody had mentioned this at, at an AML conference a couple of years ago. 
it's it's tough to outsource your AML compliance because at the end of the day, as a license holder, you're responsible. So when you're working with these partners, a lot of times they they have their own AML program. There there may be states where they do have the filing obligation, but for example, here in Connecticut, um, it, it's a state issued license. So we we actually file we actually file all the filings under under our casino license. No different than we do with the CTRs and SARS. So having it's really important to kind of try to get involved as early as possible, and that's that's not always possible. But when when these are as you're rolling out in a new state, to really early on, even in the contract stage, lay out the expectations of of what you're going to have access to, what type of system reporting you're going to have, who's going to have access to it. What you don't want is a situation where you're you're relying on a third party to tell you when something's suspicious. That 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 has always made me feel comfortable my entire career. So it, it's always a matter of trying to continue to work with that operator. And, and we're continuing to do that here is, is, is what can, what can we see on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis that lets us kind of make those determinations on our own based on what we think is suspicious. Because the last thing I want is to be audited and find out that the IRS does consider something to be suspicious. And we had a blind spot because we weren't, we didn't have that availability to that data set coming through Atlantic city. A lot of times it, it literally comes down to, the contract status. What, what do you have access to as, as early as you can kind of work with your legal team, your operating team, if it's a corporate team, getting that getting that exposure to that process to make sure that from the very beginning, you have the tools you need to make sure that you're set up for success and you're not you're not trying to play catch up down the road. That's that's a tough relationship. We've we've seen a lot of times where compliance, to your point, sometimes uh, gets invited to the party afterwards. And so now you're having to review this contract and, you know, do you have the ability to review their AML program if they have independent testing? Do you have the ability to review the results of the independent testing? Um, as far as the data is concerned, you know, what, what what access do you have or don't you have? I mean, I think we've seen, you know, with with some clients, they've got reporting that that comes from, you know, from their third party and they can't even tell if it's a cash bet or if it's a, a rebet and you know if you're talking about retail you've still got your ctr filing obligations so just depending on you know having to depend to your point on on whether the writer you know wrote that down on the mtl or not that's that's a, a scary thought since we've come so far in automating a lot of this so that the transactions automatically flow in and it's almost like we're taking a little bit of a, a step backwards um, on, on those reporting and, you know, those administrative things that we're hoping not to have to worry about as much anymore. So we can focus on the suspicious activity. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's when it this takes me back to my time in, in one of my corporate roles as we were going out state by state, I would kind of tell the compliance teams at the properties, you don't, I think don't underestimate the amount of time that you're going to need to add to your daily audit process for the book. Like it's, it's not like, adding a pit of eight tables or, or or a room with another 20 slot machines. This this is an entirely new audit. It's going to take a lot of time. It's a very manual process. So be prepared. I mean, I, we, would, we typically talk like we would roll out a new a new sports book across the portfolio. You, you may need to hire another analyst because it, it, that that is a, it, based on the size, that, that could potentially be a full-time audit right there. That there's, there's a lot going on, especially on an NFL Sunday. It, it was re, re, during this past football season, I was trying to figure out we were getting some some data errors that I was a little uncomfortable with. So I went to the book on a Sunday afternoon 
And then I saw exactly what the problem was between the one o'clock games ending and the four o'clock games starting. There's 20 people in line that want to get their bets in for that next game within the next five minutes. It was it was chaos. So you go down there and you experience that. I'm like, you know what? Now I see why why we were missing some of those transactions. And then that may be a time where we need to up our staffing or change some of our procedures. But it, it, taking that step in, they're like, oh, yeah, that was that was two hours of calm followed by eight minutes of chaos. That's 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 where your where your issue was. You know, I, I think that's something that gets often overlooked is, you know, as as compliance from our offices, if, if we don't ever step down into operations and see what they're dealing with, it's it's really easy for us to tell them that they should be doing these things. Um, you know, pretty pretty recently I was at a casino here in Vegas and just playing a little blackjack and every single table was full. Right. And granted, I, you know, I'm not gambling that much. I'm, I'm not hitting the MTL threshold. That's for sure. But, you know, from, from buy-in to cash out, I, I don't think the pit supervisor looked at our table for more than, you know, five seconds at a time. And, and to be fair, when you've got an entire pit, that's completely full. There's so many things going on. How can you, but then in that case, how can you, really know what the average bet is how can you really know what the full walks is i mean you're listening for cues of cash out and things like that but with so many things going on it's it's chaotic and it's and it's easy to miss and so you know part of it is being able to have those conversations of is is staffing appropriate or or part of it is having a conversation of how can we make this easier on you what can we do to help so that we're not just you know barking orders from our offices and in the back of house and and we're really creating that collaborative relationship so i i think to your point one of one of the biggest recommendations i could probably have for any compliance officer is spend time on the floor yeah that that that, that is absolutely critical i mean it's it's easy to think compliance is is 9 to 5 i've 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 graduated to the office world i don't have to leave my office i think that's the the exact wrong approach i i try to get down to the floor every day, uh, sometimes come in on weekends, come in on, on evenings. Every, every single policy that I've ever created in my career sounds great at, at 11.30 a.m. on a Wednesday when I'm when I'm drafting the memo. And I'll be the first to tell you, some of my policies have been, have been downright stupid and awful when you see <laughs> Friday night at 9 p.m. when it's when it's eight deep at the cage, you understand like, oh, now I get why there was some pushback on this. So, I mean, I think you have to be, I mean, you get credibility that way. That's, that's the only way that if, if you're, if you're stubborn and you say, well, I'm the compliance officer and this is what we're going to do. You're, you're not going to get that culture. You're not going to get that buy-in. You, you need to go down. And it's something I've done in my career. Like you said, it's something I'd recommend to any new compliance officer. You need to build that relationship with your head of tables, your, your director of the cage, director of the cage. That's got to be the most difficult position in the casino because there's so much that a cashier has to do and you're supervising these cashiers and and now you layer on top all these AML responsibilities well they have a customer that's 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 had a couple drinks and they're yelling at them at 11:30 on a Saturday it's it's you've got to get the buy in from your operational team to to kind of have them understand what you're doing and and again some of my best ideas come from those teams that that I'll put out a policy and 2 weeks later Hey Zach, this this doesn't work. We're, we're grinding to a halt. But if we do this, I think we can we can fix the problem. And you sit down and have that conversation. Like you know what, it's a great idea. There's, there's no reason to do it this way. You've got a much better way. I still get the data I need. The risk is still 
solved or mitigated, but let's move forward with that. So that's that's absolutely critical is, 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 is say, a, a working compliance officer. You, you got to be down on the floor. You got to come in on weekends. You got to, if, if you don't appreciate that you're in a casino, just, just, just take a walk around. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. You're not, you're not in the back window of, or the back office of a bank. You're, you're in the most exciting industry in the world. You got to go out and take advantage of it and really understand what's going on. And how I'm curious, how do you approach that, you know, plugging in in a way, because obviously we don't want to disrupt operations, right? But at the same time, we've got to experience it. We've got to get to know it. I know at my one of my previous properties, you know, they would have their their standups, you know, um, maybe every every month or so, and they would have one per shift. So sometimes it was great for as a compliance officer to be able to jump into the standups. Sometimes I wouldn't even say anything or give any training, I would, I would just listen and then be available for questions. But sometimes we'd go with, you know, uh, risks that we're seeing, you know, things that are happening to maybe just uh, disperse a little knowledge and get feedback on on what they're seeing and, and how they think we could approach it. But how how have you worked with, with operations so uh, they're comfortable seeing you and it's not like, oh, God, compliance is coming down here? Yeah. No, I think it, it's just kind of being present. I mean, I've gone down and I've spent, like I said, I've spent an afternoon in the sports book, just observing. I went down and spent an evening in the cage, just standing in the back, not criticizing, not commenting, just kind of watching, taking it all in. I'll go down and, and, and walk the floor and just stand on the perimeter of the pit and just kind of monitor and see. Oh, yeah, it's that 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 floor, that floor supervisor is watching six games or eight games. I'm like, that's that's why those ratings may be a little bit off by a hundred or two. It's difficult. So kind of getting that perspective. But then to your point, having having in-person meetings, if you're at a smaller regional property where maybe you can get to every orientation or uh during the annual retraining, you can you can kind of get in there and do it yourself. That's that's one thing. But at a property this size, I, I can't possibly be at every orientation and in a lot of our training we do on demand. So we're in the process of setting up um FAQ sessions where we're where maybe it's once a quarter, once every six months. I'm gonna sit down and meet with cage leadership and table leadership and, and give them an opportunity to ask questions. I think your your, your standard training program is important, but really you get the most benefit from having a cage shift manager talk about something that happened and say, hey, how should I handle that in the future? What would you do here? And now you're going to give that answer to the other six shift managers, and now they're going to have that knowledge to take with them. So I think, yeah, to your point, it's, it's absolutely critical to get out there and, and give them a chance to ask, why are we doing this? Uh, how can we do it better? What would you do in this situation and give them the chance to, to ask the questions that they can't they can't ask a PowerPoint these questions. They need to ask you. You're the you're the expert. How have you approached that training? What kind of frequency do you conduct it with? And how does it change for you when you're talking to senior leadership versus middle management versus frontline operations? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important to to kind of know your audience. I, I've worked with a lot of out, outside third parties that, that kind of offer that that out of the box training, and it, it works well. And it typically, you have good reporting and good good um, uh, administrative side of it. But at the end of the day, it, it's it's sometimes it can be a little stale or generic. I mean, one one of the things that I've found is if if you talk to a cage supervisor after the training, they don't necessarily know anything that they didn't know before they went to training because it's 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 a standard training model. One thing I, where possible. What I've always tried to do is, is build policy-specific training for individual departments, but based on what's happening here, what are our expectations, what's happening at the cage, knowing your audience. I mean, my my homegrown training, nowhere in there are you going to hear the words placement or layering or really – the cage cashier doesn't need to know that. They need to know 
what minimal gaming is. What's an example of chip passing? What what do I do if if Sean, if Sean's passing all this money to Shannon at the window? What do I need to do? That that's really where you should focus your training because then you're actually going to to, to benefit those those employees. So I think it's really important if you can to really tailor your training to to the audience, to the department, to your policy. And then with with, with the executive team and the C-suite, we put together training that focuses on the why. So these are some of the fines. These are some of the uh, culture of compliance tips that we're looking for. I'll go through and and talk about one of the things that to me that has the most impact is, uh, by the way, FinCEN doesn't allow you to do no-fault settlements anymore. So if you get in trouble with FinCEN, you have to admit willful money laundering. Do you want that on your resume when you when you want to go to your next casino? Do you want them to say, oh, wait, you were a willful money launderer at your last casino? So really kind of getting out of the weeds but with the executive team, kind of taking them to the high level. This is why we're doing it. I think I like to give examples of we meet on a quarterly basis, and I'll go over specific SAR scenarios. What are we seeing on the floor? And then what I really like to do is talk about these are eight customers that we de-risked. And this is why we found that when we researched Sean, Sean is involved in organized crime, and we believe he was running illegal sports bets to our casino out of New York. We were effectively able to get him out of our casino. We had law enforcement reach out to us for more information on Sean. We believe Sean's being investigated. We can actually show that, hey, maybe some of our reporting actually got Sean off the street and ended his his reign of his reign of terror on the streets of New York. So it, it, it's kind of good to kind of show the executive team there are tangible benefits and outcomes from what we're doing. And, and this is, this is what our reporting can lead to. That's, that's such a great point. And, and being able to create those, those case studies, I, I think that helps make it real for everyone. Um, you know, one, one thing that I was very fortunate to have at one of the properties I was working at is, you know, FinCEN uh, has those, those law enforcement awards that they do annually, right? Where they, they cite these cases that, you know, resulted from, or were assisted by SARS that were, that were filed by, you know, either gaming institutions or, or banks and things like that. And um, some of the SARS we filed were actually for one of the, the cases that was nominated for the law enforcement award. So we, we got the letter, um, from FinCEN, from the the director at the time, and it gave, you know, they had to be a little more vague. They couldn't say names or anything like that, but they were able to give us enough detail that we could go back and find out what SARS they were so that we could then create this case study. And whether it was a, a training or a memo or some meetings, we could show them like, hey, this had a real impact on helping break down this international fraud ring. And if you can tell a really special story like that it's it's so much easier to to get that buy-in it's easier for them to say well you're just you're, you're checking the box you're doing what you have to do but when when you actually can show them like that there are there are tangible benefits here like we, we're not just I, i've heard from people before while well, they, they they're just making us agents of of the government that we're digging too far i couldn't disagree more like we're actually we're performing a valuable service here that the, the casinos really are prone to different kinds of risk. But if, if we do our best and do what we're supposed to do, we really can get these, these bad actors to, to go elsewhere and not utilize our casino for anything that they're trying to do, whether it's actual laundry or even just coming here and, and enjoying their, their ill-gotten gains. We, we, we can have an effect and actually clean that up and, and really get that, that activity out of our, out of our casinos. I think it's a great thing. 
Yeah, I mean, we we have visibility sometimes that that law enforcement doesn't have. So, you know, sometimes we get more intimate or more detailed knowledge of what they're doing that puts us in a position that we can have such an impact. And yeah, it just I, I think I think it sells culture of compliance so much more if, if we can get somewhere where everybody sees that and, and sees the value in, in what they're doing and, and, and how they're contributing to it. Yeah, hundred percent. I know people people laugh and may think I, I'm an AML nerd, but it's it's exciting. Like we talked earlier, you, you want to get to a yes. If you've got a, a questionable customer, you want to find a way to get to let yes. But when you find somebody that's not questionable, when you find somebody that's clearly a bad actor, it, it feels good to send that notice out that hey, you're you're not welcome here. You you can't bring that money here anymore. You, you're going to have to go find somewhere else to launder it. That you, you're not welcome at Foxwoods. Uh, Zach, I think that is the the perfect note to end this on um this has been an incredible podcast thank you so much for your insight thank you so much for coming on thank you guys this was this was great i love always always love talking about compliance thanks again for joining us today on connectify conversations you can support our show even more by leaving us a rating wherever you download your podcast and by sharing connectify conversations with gaming industry leaders like yourself Visit connectify.com to learn more. That's K-I-N-E-C-T-I-F-Y.com. Until our next conversation, always remember to minimize risk and maximize your efficiency.